Worthy is his name to be praised. Amen? Amen. Amen. It is so good to be with you today, whether you're in person, whether you're watching online right now. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and it is just an honor to get to gather on this Palm Sunday. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open up to the Gospel of John. These are the moments in our services where we're going to come around the scriptures. We believe here at Calvary that the Bible is the inspired word of God. We believe it is relevant for us today. So we look to these moments as a community to come around the scriptures, to learn more of who God is, to learn more of who Jesus is, and how are we called to respond to the saving message of Jesus Christ. And so we're gonna begin to read this together, John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, when he raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. So Father, take this word, take it deep down into the depths of our being. May it speak to us, may it encourage us, Father. Lord, there's so many things that are going on in the individual people in this room. Those who are sick, those who are worried, those who are happy, those who are experiencing peace, those who are experiencing joy, those who are anxious. And all of that right now, Father, we just place at your feet so that we can receive from you what you would see fitting for us. And so Lord, we thank you. We love you. Speak to us in these moments in your precious and holy name we pray, amen. Amen, you may take a seat this morning. That was a video I took of my daughter when we were having our Friday morning tea party, as you could see in her dress, and that's makeup on her face. She tries. She's, you know, she's figuring it out as a four-year-old. But there's two things about that, that video, that song. I don't even know how this book got into our house, but there was this little children's book that has these buttons you press and there's these songs to be sung. And I remember hearing her sing that and it kind of was very nostalgic for me. I mean, I guarantee you there's probably some, you know, cam video recording of me singing that song at Open Bible Church in Sunland, California back in, you know, the early 90s. That's like a, a song that maybe some of you even recognize that maybe on a Palm Sunday at some point you said that, Hosanna, hallelujah, he saved me. So there's the nostalgic part of watching that, but then the other part of it was this deep sense, this kind of, 
my father's heart towards my daughter is that I so desperately want her to understand the things that she's singing. When she says that he saved me, I so desperately want my daughter to grow and to learn and to understand what exactly does that mean that Jesus saved her? What, is that, what does that mean for her, her future? What does that mean for her present? What does that mean for her as a person? And what's unique as a, as a father is I'm getting to have these moments where I, I'm beginning to get to teach my daughter certain things. Moments will happen here at the church where she'll see something and then she'll begin to ask questions. Like for instance, the last time that we all took communion together, she came into the sanctuary, she saw the, the little cup on your chair, much like you had today, and she asked me, Daddy, you know, what are, what are the snacks for? Which is a brilliant question from a four-year-old because if you think about it, that is like the essential snack item for a four-year-old. Cracker and juice, this is great. And so I began to try to explain to my daughter what this was. Well, honey, it's not just snacks, although it looks like it, but there's actually something deeper going on. And then I, I'm like trying to do my best. Like, how do you explain this to a four-year-old? Well, you know, sweetie, this cracker represents Jesus' body and we eat it and this cup is his blood and we drink it. Have fun, you know? <laughs> I mean, you can just like sense in her four-year-old mind, like, I don't compute what you are talking about. But it's interesting because it's taught me, how do I explain this to people? Uh, how do we explain it today as some of you who walked in this room this morning and you saw that cup, you saw that wafer, and maybe you've even been part of church for a long time and you've taken these elements before, but when is the last time you asked yourself, like I've had to ask myself this past week, what does this meal actually mean? Or as my daughter might say, what are these snacks for? So what are they for? Now, today is Palm Sunday, and today is the day that we, as part of the church, we are reminded of that moment that Jesus came into Jerusalem. This is the beginning of Holy Week, and we know where this all leads to. He comes into Jerusalem. Inevitably, he is put to death on Friday, and then on Sunday, we get to rejoice and praise him for he was raised from the dead. And in the midst of all of this, specifically for today on Palm Sunday, I want us to kind of come around this question of what exactly was Jesus doing when he came into Jerusalem that day? And to, to begin to ponder this, to begin to have it make sense to us, I want to go to the text that we read just a moment ago, John chapter 12. Verse 12 began with saying, the next day a large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. This group of people who are in Jerusalem, they're there to celebrate this festival called Passover. Now in Judaism, there's a lot of different festivals and they all are rich with meaning, but none of them have the same type of powerful meaning as Passover did. And so there's this, this group who are in Jerusalem and they are beginning to hear about this one named Jesus. Just a number of days before this, he raised someone from the dead. And that type of news gets around. People want to, to share about that type of a story. And so in the midst of these people in Jerusalem, they're getting ready for Passover. Part of Passover, they would sit together and they would be reminded of the Exodus story. They'd be reminded of how God rescued the Israelite people from Egypt. 
And so it was in the midst of this time of celebrating the reality that God once rescued them and their deep desire that he would rescue them again, this is the moment when Jesus came into Jerusalem. And all the people in the mode of preparation, in the mode of remembrance, you can imagine that as they start to hear that this Jesus person is coming, who has healed those who are blind, healed those who are deaf, just raised someone from the dead. Maybe they had heard his teachings or they had heard that he spoke with someone who had authority. They spoke, or he spoke of one that said, you know, there's gonna be a kingdom that would come. You've got to imagine that their expectations would begin to build as to what would it mean that this Jesus was coming. Could he possibly be the Messiah that has been long foretold that would come. So in anticipation in verse 13, it tells us that they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Hosanna, this, di- this idea of, of declaring save us now. There's this deep desire to rescue us again. Now, what we begin to realize is that the the crowd, and you could really include the disciples in this, they had an expectation of what Jesus was about to do. Working from more of like a traditional kind of viewpoint of what the Messiah would do, they're assuming that he's going to come in and he's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to kind of move out the wicked Jewish leadership. He was going to either restore or, or, or rebuild the temple. That was their expectation. See, what their agenda was is to align Jesus with their hopes for their country. Their agenda was to, they wanted him to be a king, but one who would deliver their political dreams. How we might be able to say this this morning is that the crowds wanted a king, but without the cross. And even though they did not understand what Jesus was doing, Jesus did not deny their declaration of his kingship. And this is a shift in his ministry because up until this point, everything from Jesus has been a conscious effort to avoid publicity. But this time he accepts it. He accepts it by getting on a young donkey, verse 14, and he sat on it, just as it is written. This was a prophecy from Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now the crowd thought that Jesus was gonna come to overthrow the Romans. What might the religious leaders think he was doing? Now the religious leaders, they saw Jesus as a disruption. He was a disruption. They did not want to believe in his message of the kingdom because it challenged their own power and their influence. It would have upset their own agenda and their tradition. See, the religious leaders, they wanted a kingdom, but only one that would fit within their own narrow framework. The chief priest and the Pharisees, they said this in John 11, verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and they'll take away both our temple and our nation. See, where the crowd wanted a king without the cross, the religious leaders, they wanted a cross. 
but not to make way for God's plans, but to put to death the one that they believed would threaten their tradition, their agenda, their status, their power, their temple, and their nation. So there's the crowd, there's the religious leaders, they all have their agenda, they all have their expectation, what do they think Jesus is doing? But we have to ask, what was, what was Jesus actually doing? What did Jesus think he was doing when he came into Jerusalem? See, God was about to act, but not in a way that they could have ever assumed. He was about to do something incredible, something powerful, something that would be absolutely incredible for all people who ever dwelt amongst the earth. But all of it would transpire not how anyone could have imagined it. I love this from N.T. Wright. He explains it this way. They were looking for a builder to construct the home that they thought they wanted. But he was the architect. Coming with a new plan that would give them everything they needed, but within quite a new framework. They were looking for a singer to sing the song that they had been humming for a long time. But he was the composer. Bringing the new song to which the old songs would, that they knew would form at best the background music. He was the king, all right, but he had come to redefine kingship itself around his own work, his own mission, and his own fate. See, Jesus was about to do something new. He was about to usher in something new. He was about to to rescue humanity, but again, in an unexpected way. So what exactly was taking place here? What exactly was Jesus about to do? And to explain this, I wanna draw our attention into the Exodus story. And we're gonna look at two parts of this story. And the first part is about a divine rescue. On Israel's last night in Egypt, God brings judgment upon the firstborn in Egypt. But what God does is he he passes over the homes of the Israelites who had sacrificed a lamb and taken the blood of that lamb and placed it on the doorpost of their home. And this was the event that finally led Pharaoh to saying, okay, enough is enough, you can go. And so God's people begin to go being led out of Egypt by their leader, Moses. And then a part of this divine rescue, they they get to the Red Sea and then God parts the Red Sea and they begin to walk through. And then as they get out into this moment, they're freed now from Egypt. They're away from that oppression. Listen to what God says to Moses. You yourself have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. See, what God was beginning to do is he wants Moses to speak to the Israelites so that they would begin to understand something. And what this was is that, listen, yes, I rescued you from here and now I have purpose for you here. I divinely rescued you from Egypt and now I have a vision 
for how life ought to be lived now in this covenant relationship with me. Israel was to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation set apart from other nations, consecrated for the purposes of God. They were now called to fulfill the vision and the calling and the vocation that God had for them. But in order to do so, they needed a framework to follow. So on Mount Sinai, God gives Moses the law. The law was going to be the way of life through which they were to show the world what God had in mind for humanity. The law was going to set out a pattern for life that the people of God were meant to follow. And following this pattern of life, Israel was meant to display God's image and certain aspects of his character to the world around them. So the law began to consist of the, what we know as the Ten Commandments. Have no other gods. Do not make an idol or any likeness. Do not take the name of the Lord God in vain. Remember the Sabbath. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. There were also laws on rituals and customs, social responsibility, morality, and more. And again, by following these laws, Israel would show the nations what God was like. But there was a problem. See, Israel was incapable of fulfilling this law. In fact, in the story, Moses is with God on Mount Sinai. He's getting the law. He's getting the Ten Commandments. And they're down at the bottom already worshiping a golden calf. Can you imagine that? Like Moses is up there, he's all excited. He's writing these things down. Oh, this is good stuff, God. I like this. Yeah. And God's like, yeah, you need to go down. They're already messing this whole thing up. <laughs> How frustrating would that have been for Moses? He's like rereading the Ten Commandments as he walks down. Okay, you know, yeah, no idols before God. No, this is good. I'll tell him that first. What's the golden calf? <laughs> you, you've already messed this up. You've already done exactly what God would have you not do. See, there was a problem. The second part of this story is about human rebellion. And so what happens in the midst of the books of the prophets they kind of begin to foreshadow something. But even before that, all throughout the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, we see this pattern play out. Here's the law, and then they rebel. So, okay, well, here's more law to help fix whatever that may have not worked, and then rebellion. Law, rebellion, law, rebellion, law, rebellion. That is the pattern we see in the midst of the first five books of the Bible. And this amounts to 613 laws that Israel had to abide by. So Moses begins to realize something. And in Deuteronomy, he's giving this kind of final speech before Israel is going to enter into the land that God had promised them. And Moses begins to sense something. He begins to understand something. That unless something breaks from not without, but breaks from within, they will never be able to fulfill the vocation that God has for them to display his glory and majesty in the world by following after his patterns and precepts. So Moses, Moses tells him, like, something's going to have to happen. In fact, he describes it as a circumcision of the heart. God was going to have to do something from within you. See, here's the reality of the law. It does a great job of setting parameters around external behavior, 
but it is powerless to transform hearts and minds. And so the prophets begin to speak to this. You know, Ezekiel started saying, you know what, there's gonna come a time where God is gonna actually replace your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Jeremiah the prophet says this in chapter 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. See, this is what Jesus was doing. Jesus in his coming was making a way for the fulfillment of these prophecies. He says in, in Matthew five seventeen, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' words, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to do what? To fulfill them. Jesus had come to bring this part of the story to fulfillment. And now a new part of the story could begin. And this new part of the story is another divine rescue. It's another divine rescue, but this one is for all of humanity through the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. The Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And while his mission was to divinely rescue us, that through his blood to forgive us of our sins, his mission was also to open a way to restore humanity by providing a way in which a transformative work could take place of our heart. So that we might do what? So that we might actually be able to participate in God's work of renewal here on earth. Listen to the author of Hebrews. How much more then will the blood of Christ, whom through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that what? That we may serve the living God. Friends, this is what we need to understand and realize this morning. We have all fallen short and rebelled against God. Every single one of you and me. We have all fallen short and rebelled against God, but we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption of Jesus Christ. But Jesus' desire is more than simply to rescue the rebel for heaven. He wants to restore the rebel for the world. And this is something that we need to grasp this morning. He wants to give us a new heart, to create a new type of people that would reclaim our kingdom vocation and display the beauty of God around us. Much like his intent would be for, for Israel to be saved from Egypt and then here's this mission, here's this purpose, here's this vision I have for you to set out this new way of being a type of person to display the glory of God. If you think about it, that's actually Genesis type of language. 
Because what was God's original intent for humanity? It was that we would display his image to the world around us. And then sin disrupts that. And then Israel tries to do it through the law. They try to abide in the law, but they can't do that, which is why Jesus comes to say, you can't fulfill it, I will. You need a new heart. I will do something that will make the way for this to be possible. See, when it comes to Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter, that was his agenda. To make way for the new family of God. A people whose, yes, their sins are forgiven, whose eternity is secured, and whose hearts are made new. So that we might be people set apart for the purposes of God. As we said a couple weeks ago, so that we too might become a holy priesthood. Now that's his agenda for Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter. But I've got to ask you, what is your agenda? What is the agenda that you have carried in this time? The crowd, they, they saw Jesus a certain way. They wanted Jesus to do a certain thing. The religious leaders, they had their agenda. But friends, we have to realize, we too have an agenda. We too have certain things that we believe about Jesus or things that we want from Jesus. The crowds wanted a king without a cross. What do you want him to be? And what I wanna do for just a couple moments is I wanna share what I think are two predominant agendas that many of us in this room have for Jesus. Agenda number one, we're gonna call it the kingdom without the king. The kingdom without the king. We want God's blessings but we don't want to submit to his rule and reign. We want peace. We want to eradicate things like human trafficking and racism and hunger and homelessness. We want to eradicate things like abuse, but we also want the right to choose what is wrong and right for us. We don't want someone forcing their views on us. We want to be in command of our world. We want the authority to rule our own kingdom. Another way you could say it is we desire the fruit of the kingdom of God, but we don't want to submit to the king. Now, if, if that way of thinking is on one end of the spectrum, let's go to the complete other side. The other side, I would describe it in this way. We want the cross without the kingdom. Dallas Willard, I think, explains this best. He says it this way. This heresy has created the impression that it is quite reasonable to be a vampire Christian. One in effect says to Jesus, I'd like a little bit of your blood, please, but I don't care to be your student or have your character. In fact, won't you just excuse me while I get on with my life and I'll see you in heaven. But can we really imagine that this is an approach that Jesus finds acceptable. See, what this leads to is this kind of abstract view of atonement that has nothing to do with now, and really it's only a means to escape this world. See, we might be passionate about the cross, but we are apathetic about our kingdom vocation. And here's what we have to understand on this Palm Sunday. We don't get to have the cross without the kingdom. And we don't get to have the kingdom without the king. When you look at the teachings of Jesus, 
When you look at the writings of the New Testament, what you realize is that the cross without the kingdom, the kingdom without the king, these both carry theological discrepancies that must be acknowledged and repented of. See, for us, believers in the way of Jesus, those who look to the cross and understand what it is that he did, for us who are truly going to plant ourselves as people who follow after Christ, for us, it's about the cross and the kingdom. It's about the savior and the king. It's about rescue and restoration, justification and kingdom vocation. Salvation and sanctification, forgiveness of sins and holiness of life, future glory and present realities. See, we are to be the types of individuals who say, thank you, Jesus, for rescuing me from sin and death. And thank you, Jesus, for calling me to new life. It's interesting, the, the early Puritans, what they called this idea, they called it owning the covenant. See, how you own the covenant is by realizing that, yes, I have been saved. Yes, I am forgiven. Yes, Jesus accomplished much on the cross on my behalf. And I own this re reality by sacrificing everything for his kingdom. Earlier, we sang that song, Hosanna, and the line that stuck out to me specifically this morning was that idea, break my heart for what breaks yours. See, that's kingdom thinking. See, someone who just wants the cross isn't quite concerned what breaks God's heart. Because I've got the cross, I've got a little bit of the blood, as Dallas Willard would say, I know I'm secured for heaven, I'm gonna get on with what I want to do, but God says, yeah, but what about what is breaking my heart in the world that I need you to step into? That I need you to not be selfish anymore. I need you to be a person of compassion a person who loves, a person who cares, a person who is growing in to become more and more like the person of Jesus Christ. Someone who lives out the fruit of the spirit, someone who has peace, someone who has some self-control for crying out loud. Yes, we have been rescued church and thank you Jesus for that reality. But Jesus also wants to give you a new heart and he wants to restore you. And he wants to make you into a person of love, a person of the kingdom. So the question I want us to ponder for just a couple of moments is what is or what has been your agenda for Holy Week? Is your agenda just, yeah, yay Jesus, he died on the cross, I get to go to heaven but you haven't quite thought about the implications of that to the rest of your reality. Or maybe you're one who, you like this idea of, of church and Jesus. You like the reality, yeah, yeah, this kingdom stuff seems good, yeah, peace and, and joy and all, that's all great stuff. But you can't tell me how to do this because this is important to me. This is what I've always known. This is who I am. See, are we willing to put it all out there to say, Father, here might have been my agenda and I'm gonna release that to you so that you can reveal to me what truly is your agenda for my life, 
for my future, for my family, for my community, for my vocation, for what you have called me into. And so the team is going to, they're gonna sing this song. And I want you just to sit and I want you to grab your communion elements. It takes about four hours to open them, so you're gonna wanna start now. By the way, we're thinking that this will be the last time we do the little, these cups. We're gonna start going back to passing. I told myself I wasn't gonna do this, but I was talking to Pastor Mary beforehand because it makes it seem so like unspiritual. But let me give you a tip. If you hold the cup and you push the lid down first, it seems to let the wafer come out easier. Just something to think about as you struggle for the next five minutes. Now here's the deal. This is why I'm doing this now. Is hear all the crinkling and the cracking and all of that. Go get it out of your system. Get it, yeah, get the wafer. If you need help, Pastor Taylor's gotten pretty good at it. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to hold these elements and I just want you to ask yourself the question over and over, what has been my agenda? Allow God to speak it to you, reveal it to you, sit in this for a moment. The team's gonna sing this song over us and then I will come back and I'll lead us into taking the elements together. Let's sing.